Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V-Radio, you can check out my archives on YouTube or on Anchor Podcasts, where it is re-uploaded to several other sites, including Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and etc. Oh, and Spotify. Today, my guest is Daryl Davis. I've mentioned Daryl many times on my podcasts in the past and in many of my videos because of his approach to literally just destroying racism, but I, I don't like to even use the word destroy. This is where actually where I came to the conclusion of studying Daryl Davis's work that I have come to make the comparison that to get rid of racism in a person, you have to disarm it like a bomb. You don't walk in and, you know, push around a bomb. You don't, you know, <laughs> jostle it. You don't light fires around it. You disarm it. And he did that by humanizing people of color to real racists. And what I mean by real racists are not people that you called racist because they don't want CRT in their schools or not people who are racist because they didn't like Black Panther. I mean, legit, real, burning crosses, racists. And, you know, he has a good track record with this. And I really feel that the left in particular needs to hear this message because this works. This is how you disarm racism. This is how you get people to lose interest in it. And unfortunately, I would say that is the opposite strategy than what is being employed right now. Um, so, Daryl, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. Sure. You know, Daryl, um, I, I stumbled on your work initially, I would say, through your Joe Rogan podcast. Um, and I learned a lot of great things there. And unfortunately, because we are pressed for time, I don't have as much time to elaborate on a lot of things there. But I do want people who are tuning into this to check out your Joe Rogan interview. And you've done a couple of TED Talks. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely make sure to mention your website, and I'll, I'll link it in the description. But what I specifically wanted to talk to you about, Mr. Davis, was that um, your strategy for approaching racism is about, it seems to me, and, and this is just my observation, is about approaching them as a person of color, treating them as a human being, and then making them understand that you're just another person. And then they just kind of lose interest. Like there's no confrontation. You're not judging them or yelling at them or screaming at them or throwing things at them. You're not burning down cities. You're not none of that. You're, you're showing them, no, you're wrong. I'm a human like you. Go ahead and elaborate on that. Sure. Well, I'm 63 years of age and you have to go back to my childhood. Uh, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service, you know, Americans, you know, U.S. State Department. So I spent a lot of time overseas, uh, starting at the age of three. You, you're assigned to a country for two years, and then you return back home here to the States. You're here for a few months, maybe a year, and then you get reassigned back overseas for another two years, different country. So every two years, I was in some different country. And in between, I'd be back home here in the States. As a child, uh, my first exposure to school was overseas, kindergarten. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, and seventh grade. And, and you know, we're talking the 1960s. But my classes over there were filled with kids from all over the world. Um, Nigerian kids, Italian, French, German, Russian, Japanese, Australian, you name it. If there was an embassy in, 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 in the country to which we were assigned from these other countries, all of their kids went to the same school. So my classes were international. That was my first uh, vision of school. So to me, that was the norm. That was my baseline. But every time I'd come back home here to my own country, the United States, I would either be in all black 
or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. And there was not the amount of diversity in my classrooms, you know, that I had overseas or like we have today. Of course, you walk in any classroom today in a city, you know, people are from everywhere. But that was not the case in the 1960s. So literally, I was living uh, 10 years ahead of my time when I was overseas because that multicultural diverse scenario had about 10 years before it finally came to our country and became, you know, somewhat of the norm. Um, so I could not understand why people from halfway around the world treated me better than my fellow Americans. It made absolutely no sense to me. Now, um, I traveled around the world as a child, and now today I'm a professional musician. I graduated from college with my degree in music, and I perform around the world. So when you take my childhood travels and my adulthood travels and combine them, I've now uh, been in 57 countries on six continents. I have performed in 49 of our 50 states. I'll do the 50th in November. Now, all that is to say is that I have been exposed to a multitude of, of different religions, ethnicities, colors of skin, uh, cultures, ideologies, you name it. I've seen it and experienced it. And all of that has helped shape uh, who I have become. Now, granted, traveling around the world, I've seen a lot of different things, things you can't even imagine because they don't exist in our country or seen cultures, you know, that we have no inkling of. But as much difference as I've seen, when I return home here, no matter how far I've gone from our country, Canada or Mexico or halfway around the globe, no matter how many different people I meet who don't look like me, who don't speak my language, who don't worship as I do, I always conclude one thing, that we all are human beings. And as such, we all want some of the same five core values, uh, which are everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be respected. We all want to be heard. We all want to be treated fairly. And we all want the same things for our family as anybody else wants for their family. So if we can learn to apply those five core values or any of those values in any situation, culture, or society in which we, we may find ourselves unfamiliar, I can guarantee you that your navigation will be much more positive and much more smooth because that is what humanity has in common, those values. And when you see that in someone else and realize this is what you live for, it's kind of hard to hate that person. It's hard to, to be against that person. No, you may not go to their church or worship as they do or, or practice some of the same beliefs or, or uh, cultures they have, but you have those things in common and that's what binds you together. Listen, a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. So you take somebody who, who is at, who's at the other end of the spectrum from you. He may even be an adversary. But if you spend five minutes talking with your worst enemy, uh, you will find something in common. And that gap between you begins to narrow. And you talk another five minutes, you find even more in common. And the gap narrows some more. So at first, you were adversaries. And as the gap narrows, you are forming a relationship with this person, a respectful relationship 
you keep on talking, the gap narrows more and you're closer to each other. And now you're heading towards a friendship. And by that time, you have found so many things in common that the trivial things that you find in contrast, such as skin color or whether the person goes to a church, a synagogue or a mosque or a temple begin to matter less and less because you have begun to humanize them and they have begun to humanize you. And that is an experience that nobody can can uh, can tell you about or, or you read in a book. You experience it. And you can't sit across the table from someone sitting there having a conversation with you and look them in the face and say, I hate you, when they're speaking the same language you are and you're finding things in common. You may not agree with everything they stand for. You know, they might they might say, you know, um, uh, Hank Williams Sr. Is the, is the greatest country singer of all time. And you say, no, it's George Jones or Willie Nelson or whoever. You know, things like that you can disagree on, no big deal, or who you vote for. But when it comes to humanity, skin color, religion, you know, culture, all of that goes out the window when you find these commonalities. So basically your experience with that, and that was a great speech, I appreciate that, was that, you know, you essentially exposing yourself as a human to them brings them around to understanding that, you know, maybe there are preconceived notions about people of certain skin color is just superficial and irrelevant and that they get to know you as a person. You know, I think like the first story that you told about how, in essence, the, the gentleman that, um, cause that's something um, my mentor, Jack Fresco did too, is he found ways to kind of appeal to their values. Like he did uh, like firearms tricks and that got the attention that made them think that he was, that he was cool. In your instance, it was about piano playing and that brought a man into, you know, your circle, so to speak, because he appreciated something about you. And then that is what opened the door to you introducing to him. Well, not only am I a good piano player, I'm also a, a person, a good person, you know, and then that just kind of dissolved his interest in racism. You want to elaborate a little bit on that story? Uh, sure. Okay. So uh, country music had made a resurgence. And, um, you know, if you want to work full time, as I did in, in the music industry, you know, you played what was popular at the time. And there had been a movie out called Urban Cowboy and all the bars that were playing disco and whatever else, top 40, they switched over to country because of the popularity of this movie. And so I joined this country band, in which I, I was the only white member. I mean, I'm sorry, the <laughs> Freudian slip there, the only black member in this all white country band. And uh, they were established in the area. So they played around a lot of places. And there was a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And uh, it was known to be an all-white bar. And by that, I don't mean there were signs on the door saying white you know, people only or something like that. Uh, black people were not welcome there. And, and it, was, it was known. And so black people did not go in there. Because you know when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it does not make a good combination. So here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge the only black person in the band, the only black person in the whole place. And we had just finished playing a set of music and we're coming off the bandstand to go sit down, take a break. Uh, when a white gentleman came up from behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. Now I don't know anybody in here. Right. So I'm turning around to see who's touching me. And it's this guy, you know, about a decade and a half older than me. He's got a big smile on his face and he's saying, you know, man, I sure love your piano playing. Um, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. 
<laughs> now, I was not offended, you know, but I was rather surprised, given this guy being a lot older than me, that he did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's style. It right. comes from black blues and boogie woogie. That's where rock and roll and rockabilly come from. And, um, you know, I said, well, Jerry Lee got it from the same place I did. And I went on to explain the black origin. Well, he didn't believe me. Oh, no, Jerry Lee invented that. I had never seen no black man play piano like that before, except for you. So I'm thinking, okay, well, the guy never saw Little Richard or Fats Domino, you know, same style. So I explained to the guy, look, man, Jerry Lee Lewis is a good friend of mine. He's told me himself, you know, who he would see and his influences and things like that. The guy didn't believe I knew Jerry Lee. But he was so fascinated with my ability to play the piano in this style, like Jerry Lee, he wanted me to come back to his table and let him buy me a drink. I go back to his table. I had a cranberry juice. He pays the waitress, takes his glass, and he clinks my glass and then says, you know, he cheers me and, and says, this is the first time I ever sat down with a black man and had a drink. Now I'm even more incredulous. Like, how can this be? Because by that time in my life, I have sat down with thousands, and I do mean thousands, of white people and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. How is it that this guy had never sat down with a black guy before, you know, in, in a social setting? Um, and so innocently, I asked him why. And he didn't answer me at first. He stared down at the tabletop. And I repeated the question, why? And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him in the side, said, tell him, tell him, tell him. And I said, tell me, because now I'm mystified. And he looks back at me just right in my face, and he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing because now I didn't believe him. Why would a Klansman walk up to me and embrace me, put his arm around my shoulder and praise my piano playing and want to hang out and buy me a drink? I know a lot about the Klan, and that's not how they operate, you know? So this guy had to be, you know, jerking me around. So while I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, produces his wallet and flips through it, and then hands me his clan membership card. And this card was for real. I recognize, I recognize it. I recognize the clan logo, all that. And I stopped laughing. So, and now I'm wondering, you know, what the heck am I doing sitting at a table with a clansman? And I gave him back his card, but he was very, very friendly. And we talked and talked and he gave me his number and wanted me to call him whenever I came back to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his friends, meaning clansmen and clanswomen to see the black guy who plays like Jerry Lee. So I'd call him every six weeks, and he would come, come and he would bring uh, his, um, his, clan, his clan member friends, and they'd watch me play and get out on the dance floor. And on the bricks, I would make my way up to his table to say hello. And some of them were very curious about me. They would hang there and meet me, and we'd talk. Others would see me coming, and they'd get up and move to some other side of the room. So the implied message was, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to touch you. We just want to look at you, you know, from afar. So, you know, that was fine, too. And so that's, you know, that's how it started. That's how it started. And I think that's what really opened the door for you, you know, because it was something about you that like he that connected to something he was passionate about. And, um, you know, and basically, I guess, because unfortunately, I don't have as much time as I would like to be able to elaborate on some of these stories. But the, you know, to cut to the end of it, basically, you befriended this person over time. And then eventually they just weren't interested in being racist anymore. Um, can you talk about like just like, you know, and uh, how that transformation took place? And of course. 
Uh, now, 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 he was not the Klan leader, the guy in the bar, but uh, but he would later provide me with the information on on how I can reach the Klan leader. And then, uh, but but this guy had had since left the Klan as well. But uh, anyway, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about you know some of the process that processes in, in play here. Um, you cannot change somebody's reality. Like you know, when you see my name in the media and things like that, oftentimes it will say something to the effect of a uh, black musician converts, you know, X number of KKK members or, or X number of white supremacists. Uh, that is not true. I did not convert anybody, not even one, but I am the impetus for over 200 to convert themselves. So now to the process, um, you know, people only know what they know. You know, they, they don't know what they don't know. And so what they do know is real to them, whether it's real or not, it's real to them. One's perception is one's reality. Whatever they perceive becomes their reality. Even if it's not real, it's real to them. So when you try to attack somebody's reality, they're going to defend it, you know, tooth and nail. And, and you are never going to succeed uh, in, in changing their reality. They have to change their own reality. So what you do is, rather than attack their reality, you offer them a better perception. And if they resonate with your perception that you've offered, then they will change their own reality because their perception is their reality. All right, so let me give you an example of that. Now, again, you got to apply those five core values. You know, even though, you know, the person may be spewing all kinds of anti-Semitic or racist, you know, diatribe and whatever else. Um, and, you know, you, you may be getting insulted listening to somebody tell you that because of your black skin or your Jewish roots or whatever, you know, that you are inferior and they are superior. You know, of course, you know, you're going to want to push back, but just sit back and listen. Keep your ego behind you. Because when you start pushing back, they already expect that. They already expect that. And they're used to that. But when you start, you know, and, and, and their wall is up, their defense mechanism and offense mechanism is up. They're ready to attack and spew vitriol because that's what makes them a supremacist. They cannot be supreme unless somebody else is inferior. So you need that juxtaposition. So they immediately want to establish themselves as being the alpha dog, the supremacist, the superior one, and you are the inferior. So just, you know, put up with it. You know who you are. You know who you are. They don't know you. So why are you worried about them telling you that you're no good? It's a lie. You know, you don't live your life on a lie. Keep your ego behind you and, and hear them out. Let them get it all out. And when you do that, believe it or not, that wall begins to come down the temperature begins to come down because you're allowing them to be heard. People want to be heard. You're, you're respecting them. Now, understand something. You don't have to respect what they're saying. You simply respect their right to say it. And when you, when you execute the, these core values, the wall comes down, and then they become more receptive, and they, and they become compelled to let you state your platform, and they're more receptive to listening to you because you, 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 you treated them with those core values. So here's where you offer a different perception. 
For example, I'll, I'll give you two examples, one hypothetical and one real, uh, real life. Hypothetical. Let's say that you have a seven or eight-year-old brother, little brother, and he goes to a magic show with his class or his friend and their parents or whatever. He comes home and tells you that uh, the magician asked for on stage, asked for some female volunteer and 50 women raised their hands. And he picked out one in the middle of the audience somewhere. And she came up on stage and he told her to climb inside this long uh, box and stick her feet out one end and stick her head out the other end. And then the magician closed the lid on the box and took a saw, a chainsaw, whatever, and cut right through the middle of the box. And the, and the chainsaw came out from the bottom of the box. He cut that box in half. He's telling you that magician cut that woman in half. And you're trying to tell him, oh, well, son, you know, that, that really didn't happen. Yes, it did. I saw it. You know, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. The saw went through the wood. It cut the box in half. You know, you weren't there. I know what I saw. And now he's, he's becoming all irate because you're trying to change his reality. He knows what he saw. He knows that box was cut in half and there was a woman in there. And you don't know that because you were not there. So don't try to tell him what he saw is not real. You are attacking his reality and he's going to defend it. It's not going to work. You can't tell him otherwise. All right. So what you do is rather than attack his reality because he's convinced and to even make it more convincing to you, he tells you once that magician cuts the box in half, he takes the half with with the feet sticking out and moves it over to stage right. And the half of the head sticking out, he moves that half over to stage left. And then he walks over and talks to the head in the box. And, and the head starts talking back to him. And then he brings the two, bo- the two halves back together and opens up the lid and the lady climbs out in full form, no blood. And he says he saw this with, with his own eyes. That woman was cut in half. Dad, it's magic. It's magic. So you try to tell him what he didn't see, it's not going to work. What you do is you offer him a better perception because perception is reality. So you say, well, son, is it possible that just perhaps the woman that he called up from the audience of those 50 women who raised their hand when he asked for a volunteer, is it possible that this particular woman, maybe she works for him? Maybe he planted her in the audience, you know, and she's a plant. Nobody knows that. And she travels to every show that he does because she knows the trick and she get and she comes up on stage and she acts like she, you know, she's all excited. And then he, she gets in the box and there's already a pair of mannequin dummy legs in lying on the floor of the box that you can't see that, that are wearing the same stockings and shoes that she has on. And she takes those legs and sticks them out the holes at the end of the box as though they were her own legs and she brings her own legs up under her chest. So her whole body is in that half of the box. So when the guy cuts the box in half, he doesn't even touch her body. Her whole body is scrunched up on that side of the box. So you can't see it. And then when he separates the boxes, her whole body is over there so he can talk to the head. And then when he brings it back together, she pulls the dummy legs out and leaves them lying on the floor of the box. And then she climbs out. So, so the seven or eight-year-old boy says, hmm, wow, you know what? Yeah, I guess that would be the only way that could work. 
So now you've offered him a better a perception and he sees it and he changes his own reality. That's how you affect change in reality. And I think that um, it's very critical that people on the left understand that, you know, if you had taken the approach that Black Lives Matter and certain other organizations that kind of have a more of a militant approach and just showed up at a Klan rally and started screaming at them and screaming slogans at them and, you know, labels at them. It, it, I, you wouldn't change a single man or woman's opinion at that rally by doing that. You would reinforce what they already believe about you. Right. And okay, so, but uh, just, just for clarity's sake, let's just back up for a second. Um, you mentioned Black Lives Matter and other use the word organizations. Um, Black Lives Matter is not an organization. It is a movement. Um, and I, I want to just d- distinguish something here because sure. a lot, a lot of people, I, I'm sure you probably know, but, but maybe some of your listeners may not. Um, there, you know, the, the problem with black lives, well, let, let, let me say this. The, the, the founders of black lives matter, uh, what they, what they created was a good idea. Uh, I understood why they did it. They wanted to put the national spotlight on the plight of black men who, for lack of a better term, were being murdered by by white police officers shooting them for holding a cell phone or holding their wallet, shooting them in the back, all that kind of stuff, where black men in those situations got to go to their grave. White men in the same situation either went home or they went to jail, but they didn't die, uh, or, no, or not as many died. So uh, they want to put the, the spotlight on this plight. Uh, they got the idea from Martin Luther King who wanted to put the spotlight on how black bus riders were being treated in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa Parks was not the first uh, black person to refuse to give up her seat on a, on a bus, but there were plenty others, but, but then, but they never made the national news. People around Montgomery knew it, but uh, so Martin Luther King wanted to put the spotlight on it. So he orchestrated all of that. So the whole world could see that and that, and all those eyes on Montgomery would put pressure upon that town and their bus company to change those laws, and it worked. So Black Lives Matter was created to put the national spotlight on what was happening to black men in this country. All right, so great idea. However- Let me, um, let me interject something really fast. Sure. Um, just to point out the difference, the contrast. Everybody looked at what happened with Rosa Parks and understood exactly who the bad guys were. Right. Whereas there are members in Black Lives Matter, and not all of them, who, instead would say go burn down a city and loot and destroy things well that's that's what i'm getting to oh i'm I'm sorry go ahead go ahead okay so the idea behind forming black lives matter was a great idea by the founders however i think they did not want to centralize they did not want you to you know um uh make an organization with chapters they and they did not want to trademark the name so therefore, they want it to be an organic thing that just pops up, right? So as a result, you've got about 90, literally about 90 different factions, not even chapters. Chapters belong to a central organization. Factions are, you know, are autonomous things. You've got um, about 90 different factions of Black Lives Matter scattered all over the country. Um, each one has its own little leadership. You know, there's no central headquarters like, say, the NAACP or the Red Cross or the Boy Scouts of America. Which is which is an, which are organ, organizations with one headquarters, a president, 
and policy is created in that headquarters and disseminated to all the chapters. So the New York chapter of the Red Cross has the exact same policies as the Los Angeles chapter. All right. Okay. That's centralization. Black Lives Matter is not like that. You've got all these different factions. It's like having too many chefs in the kitchen uh, trying to do the same recipe. Some are very aggressive. They go around the town and burn stuff down or tear up stuff, spray paint graffiti all over everything. Um, while others, you know, want to sit down with a state legislature or the city legislature and work out bills to take down Confederate monuments uh, or, or change names of buildings that were named after slave owners. Uh, you got some Black Lives Matter chapters that are full of black supremacists. You got some that have blacks and whites working together. You have some that have more white people in the in the faction than um, than black people, uh, because anybody you can walk out your door right now and create your own Black Lives Matter chapter. Nobody owns that name; it's not trademarked because the organizers didn't want to do that. I think at the time, you see, Black Lives Matter was created in the wake of the Trayvon Martin death in two, in 2013, you know, when George Zimmer, Zimmerman murdered him. Um, I think at that time they had no idea how big that movement was going to, was going to balloon. Um, so, you know, it, it really ballooned after George Floyd, right. In 2020. Um, but now, you know, there, there are all these different factions of black lives matter and there's some who hate me for what I do, right. as you saw, but uh, I, I can count up to about six of them that have contacted me over the years and said, hey, do you give workshops? Can you teach us how to do what you do? And they admire me and they want me to come and speak to them and that kind of thing. So they're all are not on the same page. And that's the problem with the media. When the media uh, talks about Black Lives Matter doing something stupid or even doing something good, they don't specify which faction. You know, like say, for example, um, what, 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 what town are you in? I'm in Monroe County in Michigan. Okay, so you're so you're in um, Monroe, Michigan. All right, so let's say uh, the Monroe chapter goes around spray painting BLM all, all over every wall and statue and whatever else, while the Lansing chapter uh, of Michigan is or, or faction is sitting down with the state legislature trying to you know legitimize stuff and and do things legally. Um, when the media reports what happened in Monroe. It doesn't say the Monroe faction of Black Lives Matter. It just says Black Lives Matter did this in Monroe. So it paints uh, the whole movement with a broad brush, which is not accurate because well, not everybody does that. But see, when, when you don't specify the Monroe chapter or faction or the Lansing or the Detroit or the Howell or the Charlotte or, you know, or, or, or whatever uh, chapter, it, it, it paints a broad brush. And, that, and that's very unfortunate. Oh, and I don't disagree with that. I think it's that the problem that I run into is that, and this is what I say frequently, is that I acknowledge that, that there are plenty of people in Black Lives Matter who do not endorse violent tactics or looting or any of that. I think what my problem is is that when it does happen, there's no effort usually to, on the part of Black Lives Matter as an organization, to condemn those activities. In fact, they're usually just kind of quiet about it and if you bring it up, then they're negative. But you keep, but you keep saying organization. It's okay, not organized. Right. <laughs> well, right. So, okay. so I mean, who, who do you go to? Like, you know, there, there are people who say, I want to donate to Black Lives Matter. Okay, fine. But who are you going to donate to? There's no national organization. It's a movement. You know, are you going to donate to the Monroe chapter and 
but uh, but but well, but, okay, the, but the well, Lansing yeah. chapter doesn't get any of that money. Well, I'll accept. No, I'll accept the correction on that. But I, I think you know what I mean, though. Is that I? Yeah, don't I understand. Know. But I, I just want to make sure that you know that the listeners understand. Sure. You know, that we, you know, we, you know when, when we throw these words around, that there is no cohesiveness. Right. Well, and I and that's the part about it, though, is that it, I mean they're always telling us, you know, white silence means violence. You know, like you know, if we don't you know, immediately jump on anything that happens, then we're complicit in it. But like, you know, when something happens, like say that gentleman who got kicked in the head in Portland, you know, by a guy who was literally saying he was out there for Black Lives Matter security, you know, that should have been something that they openly talked about. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I was part of Occupy Detroit and Occupy Flint. And we had what I guess they were just referring to themselves as Black Bloc at the time, but we had Antifa that would follow us around in our peaceful marches and break stuff, and then we would get the, um, you know, we get the blame for it. But we would publicly condemn that, like we would say, "That's not us. We're not. We're not about that." But instead, what I find is that there are too many people that you know become apologists for it, or even just outright call for it. And I agree that the media sensationalizes that. There's no question. But on the same side, on the same token, on the other side of the media, because like just about everything you said, for example, like. Jimmy Dore got in trouble recently for bringing a Boogaloo boy on. And what he learned about the Boogaloo boys is the Boogaloo boys are also a amorphous group, that they're not all the same, that they don't only have, like, that's something I've said about all these groups. They have differing levels of radicalization in them. And some of them are not very radical at all. And some of them are very radical. Exactly. Go ahead. I agree to 100%. And just, you know, look look at the Capitol insurrection, which is uh, 20 minutes from where I live. Right. I live right outside of D.C. in Maryland. I'm, 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 I'm 10 minutes from the D.C. line. Um, you know, there were tens of thousands of people there. The, you know, 99.9% of those people were white. All right? Um, there were over 1,000 who made it into the Capitol itself. And the other tens of thousands were outside. Now, you saw somebody walking around in the Capitol you know, you know, they wanted to overturn the election and take our country back. Well, you saw somebody in the Capitol walking around with a Confederate battle flag. You saw another guy walking around with a uh, Camp Auschwitz T-shirt on. You don't have to ask them what that stands for. You sure. know, what, what do they want? Um, you know, obviously, it's racist and anti-Semitic. They want to take, take those particular people want to take our country back to the days when you know, uh, I had to drink from a separate water fountain or I was not, you know, being served in a, in a restaurant because of the color sure. of my skin. All right. But does that mean that all 10,000 outside or more felt the same way? No. You know, and, and, and it would be horrible to paint all those white people with the same uh, level of racism and anti-Semitism as those two knuckleheads uh, who are walking around with the flag and the T-shirt. Well, unfortunately, though, that's what they do. And the people that seem to be desperate to create this boogeyman of an enormous white supremacist problem, there's still white supremacy. There's still racism. I'm not saying that there isn't. Right. But, you know, but like I had a conversation with the leader of the Nazi party because he has a radio show. He'll just let people talk to you. Which one are you talking about? Um, I can't remember his name, but it's on Blog Talk Radio. You can. OK, you well, can well the, 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 the leader of the largest uh, Nazi party in, in this country uh, he stepped down, and he and he uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, he was in my documentary with me. Uh, when he was in the documentary, he he was the commander of the of the largest neo Nazi organization in this country. It's called the NSM, National Socialist Movement. His name is Jeff sure. Scoot. 
And Jeff is now out of the movement, and he works very hard to de-radicalize people who are in the movement and help prevent people from joining that movement. He comes out with me quite often and speaks out and denounces uh, white supremacy and white nationalism and all that kind of thing. Well, right. Now, no, and, I, and I'm glad that that, that happened. And I've, I'm actually familiar with that. What I was going to get at was that he pointed out that um, because I was just trying to do what you do and understand their their ideology. So that's uh-huh. why I'm discussing it with him. The funny thing is, is one of the things that the guy said, and unfortunately, I don't remember his name, but, you know, he said, for one thing, they don't actually that particular chapter does not believe in genocide. They just believe in segregation, which seems to be coming more common is a lot of these racist groups are like, no, no, we don't, we don't, we're not about that. We just want to be segregated again. Like even some clan groups are saying that. But anyway, the point was, is that he made this, the distinct point that to him, the violence carried out, you know, during these riots is for a recruiting point. It lets, it gives them validity to their statements when they try to suggest that people of color are inherently criminals, that they're inherently violent. You know, right. and that's why, you know, Martin Luther King grasped this concept that if your concern is that you don't want to be profi- profiled as violent criminals, going out and behaving like violent criminals is not to your benefit because that only fuels it. And he also pointed out that these organizations like were largely struggling. I mean, some of the chapters that I've seen interviewed of all these groups just look kind of pathetic. It looks like maybe a dozen people if that, right. because, and they can't get interest. And I remember watching a documentary during the Obama administration, just as in the time period, not that he had anything to do with it, you know, where one chapter was even talking about like removing racism from their platform and like maybe even letting people of color join to become more like, yeah, that was in, yeah, that, 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 that didn't fly. That was in Montana. And, right, he, had, it, and he invited the uh, NAACP and he gave a hundred dollar donation to the NAACP. I, I, I remember all that. Well, and I can imagine that it wouldn't have flown. My point was just to say that the racism at that point was so unpopular that even the Klan was like, maybe we need to get off this board. And, and it's, but instead now what, what the guy in the Nazi party was pointing out is that all this riots and stuff is making it easier for him to recruit. It's making people more. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially if, if there are acts of violence carried out that are racially motivated specifically towards white people, then that's, you're basically giving them recruiting fodder. And, you know, if they start to do things like they're normalizing, like they've created a new racial slur for white people called why people, you know, and they say negative things about white people all the time and they generalize white people, white people do this, white people did this, white people did that. You know, white people are responsible for this, this, this. And I'm just like, you know, and I realized it was like, if you were to switch that around and speak um, in the same terms under the same attitude, you know, with the same negative distaste in your voice about black people or any other, you know, color, nobody would accept that. And unfortunately, what it seems to me is that it activates racist thoughts in the opposition. They start to go, well, what about your people? What about their problems? What about... And that, that, I guess, is what I'm getting at, is that I agree with you that there are, there are certainly segments within these groups, but the groups that defend this kind of behavior or even encourage it, whether it be the violence, whether it be the, you know, or, you know, when they talk about words, this is another element that I wanted to bring up, was that, so they're trying to redefine racism to mean prejudice plus power. And I've had to debate this many times with people. And what I ended up finally developing as a card that kind of usually ends the argument is I asked them point blank, if that's true, if people are only racist when they have power, then at what point were the Nazis racist? Because Hitler wrote Mein Kampf from his prison cell. His his organization, and they were, (laughs) 
um, was not popular initially at all. So at what point do they become racist? Is it when they're putting people on, you know, trains and, you know, killing them? Is that when we get to call them racist? Or is it when they were in the streets talking about this stuff? And the reason that that ends up coming up is that, you know, I don't know if you watched, I'm not going to be able to pronounce the gentleman's name. It's like Kami Kanban or something. He was a professor of black studies on C-SPAN saying that the solution was to exterminate white people. And I've been told that guy's not racist because he doesn't have any power to do those things. So when does he become racist? Is it when he can do those things or is it when he's talking about doing those things? And the final point I would ask before, you know, I, I bring you back on this is that, you know, Antifa and some of these organizations, they say, well, we should attack these people for even thinking like that, for even talking like that. But nobody wants to discuss black supremacy and they don't want to discuss that even the regular, like regular liberal stuff now comes off as being anti-white and in some cases black supremacist, very veiled, but it's there. You know, what, what would you be your, what would be your, I guess, retort to that? Nothing can be, well, for every, for every action, there's an equal reaction. You know, everybody wants to talk about reverse discrimination and all these kind of things. Now, you know, racism and supremacy on any side is unacceptable. All right. But I'm just going to explain to you how it comes, how it comes by, how it comes about. For every action, there's an equal reaction. Uh, you cannot have reverse discrimination unless you had regular discrimination first. Nothing sure. can be put in reverse that has not already gone forward. So reverse discrimination is the reaction to the action of discrimination. All right. Black supremacy is the reaction to the, to the put forth of white supremacy. I'm not justifying one, one over the other. I'm just telling you how they came about. So you can't, you know, addressing black supremacy is not going to solve white supremacy. White supremacy should have been addressed a long time ago. It's been here a lot longer. I'm not giving black supremacy or reverse discrimination a pass. I'm just telling you the, the root cause needs to be solved first. All right. For example, if you got cancer in the bone, no topical cream or Band-Aid is going to fix it. It's, you know, the rash that you have on, on top of your skin may, is a symptom of the cancer in your bone. All right. You've got to go down to the bone and hit that with the chemo and the radiation. You can't just put, um, you know, Neosporin on, on top of your rash and think your cancer is going to be gone. The, the, can, the, the, the rash is the reaction to the cancer. All right. So you gotta, you got to address the nucleus first and then everything else, all the byproducts and symptoms will then go away. Well, no, and I don't disagree with that. I think that part of the problem is, is that my understanding of it is racism begets racism. You know, exactly, precisely. Right, you know, and if you misery if they, loves company, right? And if they, that's what concerns me is that the the dialogue in the in the racial activist groups is just slowly starting to sound more and more black supremacist in its approach. I mean, there's a, a Facebook post from one of the Toronto organizers that literally just reads like suggesting that black people are the master race and that white people are degenerate, you know, um, de de you know, defects. Like it literally just sounds like Nazi propaganda. Spat right. Well, white people. Exactly. And, and it's, it's the same rhetoric that you find in Christian identity and, and um, Aryan nations, you know, you know, they are the chosen people and, and, and blacks are, are, are the children of the devil. And so are Jews. I mean, all, all they're doing is just changing the, um, the, uh, 
you know, the the, the victims and 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 the the, the oppressed and the oppressors. All right. When I when I was in school, uh, in high school, um, bad jokes uh, uh, against Polish people were were very popular for whatever reason. I never liked them, but I'd hear them all the time, and they were called Polak jokes. All right. I didn't like them, but I you know I I'd hear them from my classmates and all that kind of stuff. Now fast forward years later, I'm doing all this clan work. And meeting meeting with these clan people, interviewing them for my book, etc. And uh, one guy, one clan leader, he loved jokes. And um, you know, we exchanged a few. I, I said, "Come on, man, t- tell me some jokes." Oh, I, I don't want to tell you any jokes, Daryl, because you know you'll you, you, you'll get offended. And I said, "No, I, I'm here to 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 hear you as you are. I want to know what you know what you think is funny." He goes, "Okay, you know, you know, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna punch me out or anything, are you?" I said, "No, no, no. I want you to be yourself." Tell me a bunch of jokes. So he told me a bunch of quote unquote nigger jokes. All right. And guess what? Before he could finish the joke, I would give him the punchline. He's like, where did you hear this joke? You know, how could you hear this joke? Because these were, you know, jokes told amongst white people against black people. Why would I know these jokes? You know what? They were the exact same jokes I heard in high school. But instead of saying, well, there were these three guys, you know, an Italian, a German, and a Polak, an Italian, a German, and a nigger. It was the same joke. Just the words had changed. They so, just changed who the people in the joke were. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, the black supremacists are, are, are just simply turning around the white rhetoric. I'm not, again, I'm not justifying it. I'm just telling you what's happening. Sure. And, and, and it happens, you know, as a reaction. And then, you know, there are people who they reach their boiling point. They reach their boiling point, and And that's when it, they, they ramp up the rhetoric. And when the rhetoric gets ramped up, so does the violence, you know. And people are, people are reaching a boiling point right now. That's what happened at the Capitol. You know, those people had reached a boiling point. You know, the, you know, the, 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 the election was, was stolen is the biggest lie told in the 21st century so far. All right. The election was not stolen. You know, the people who think it is are a bunch of idiots. I hate to say that, but that, but that is the case. The thing was not stolen. All right. But they want to believe that their perception is their reality. And they had reached the boiling point where they could not accept defeat. And they're going to go and, and, and turn violent. You know, first it started with the rhetoric. You know, uh, the election was stolen. The election was stolen. You know, it's, uh, fake news, this, that, and the other. And so, the rhetoric got ramped up, and then the violence came when they all descended on Washington, D.C., from California, from New York, from Texas, from wherever. They all came there, and it was very, very violent. Well, okay? right, and I and I would want to, like, um, it, that's actually a point I forgot earlier, was that, you know, there were blacks for Trump there at that yeah. incident, too. There were people, of, like, that was something that I, because unfortunately, like, you know, I, what, due to some of my kids' hobbies, I run into a bunch of Trump people because for whatever reason, there's a lot of conservatives involved with the sport. Trump of people are fine people. Yeah, I don't have yeah. a problem with Trump people. Well, right. I was just getting at the point was just to say that I, what concerns me about what, all the coverage about that riot is that it, it, because it becomes their evidence. You see, there was this massive white supremacist riot where they tried to take over the country. And I was like, um, there were sure there were certainly white supremacists there, but that's not what motivated those people. And I'm not one of those people. I just know some of them. Like, 
you know, and like one of my friends, literally a black man who wears MAGA hats, you know, but they, they wanted that. It's almost like they need the problem to be really big so that they can justify, you know, where they're going with it. And in some cases, it's because they're making money, you know, on all of this stuff. Like Robin D'Angelo gets paid absurd amounts of money to help lecture countries, not countries, I'm sorry, companies on how to be less racist. You know, Ibram X. Kendi got paid $20,000 for a 45-minute phone conversation with a school. You know, it was a, a Zoom call. So there, there's things that are, unfortunately, I would say, polluting everybody's understanding. And I agree that January 6th was wrong. There's no question. I think what makes it difficult for some people to take it seriously is that, you know, there were riots all through 2020, a little over 500, nowhere near as many as people might expect, you know, but um, nobody discussed those. Nobody wanted to talk about those. And if you try to discuss them, you know, in some cases, you know, you can find people and I've, and I did a documentary about this comparing the two and they're both wrong. But it was that they were they, they were Black Lives Matter organizers who said things like, I want to go burn down the Capitol. I want to you know take it to the Senate, into the Congress. You know, like, there are people that are like that, you know, that they didn't get any attention for it. And I guess I want to be clear that this is something else I, I want to sense was that I'm not trying to suggest that there's one side at fault. I'm trying to discuss the phenomenon of racism itself and hatred itself and how people need to agree to under or rather to understand that. If you know, that's why I said racism begets racism is that if we go out and we first of all, we normalize the idea of saying negative things about white people as a whole all the time, you're inviting the other side to do the same thing in response. It's a natural response. And that's not, you know, and you know that dealing with clan members, you know, if when you went and interacted with those people to disarm their racism, you know, you certainly didn't spend a bunch of time trying to say, well, white people do this and white people do that. I mean, that it's because because. Okay, there's a quote. Uh, I'm I'm just going to paraphrase it. I don't remember it word for word, but something to the effect of the defense of one's own uh, the the defense of one's own wrong is further weakened by pointing out one's perceived wrong of someone else. You don't defend your you you don't defend you know um, uh, uh, when somebody accuses you of being wrong. You don't defend it by pointing out what they did. Defend yourself. Right. Don't, yeah. You know, so um, I well, mean, the only effect that I've seen of trying to change the definition of racism is that it's given people like a license to behave exactly as racist. That's what like I remember a video not long ago of a guy who was just shouting, you know, the Chinese um, slur at a police officer over and over again, you know, and literally just, you know, just spitting out, you know, the um, the Chinese slur over and over again at this police officer who happened to be Asian, you know, and I, ironically it was a white guy who said, what are you doing? That's racist. And he says, well, black people can't be racist, you know, and that's where we run into a problem is that I just, it almost seems like it's, it's created. a. Yeah, but, but make sure, for, make sure you understand. And, and everybody else listening understands sure. that guy does not speak for all black people any more so than the leader of the Ku Klux Klan speaks for all white oh, people. No, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. What I'm referring to is that, what I'm concerned about is that when we we tell a movement that you can't be racist no matter what you do, then you've you've created a situation where they just start behaving exactly as the people that they oppose. But what's worse is is this is what I find interesting. When I'm generally dealing with racists of color, they're usually spending a lot of time trying to say, "But I'm not racist." 
at least the white racists I talk to are honest about it. You know, they're not trying to obscure it or obfuscate it. And that's why I said, you know, that's why I bring up the Nazi example is that those men were racist right away. You know, well, listen, no- I know I know a lot of white people who claim not to be racist. Okay, uh, but, well, no, but, I, I believe you. I believe you. But but they are racist. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like, um, you know, my best friend is black, uh, but I wouldn't want him marrying my sister. You know, that kind of crap. You know, they may not be hood-wearing, robe-wearing racists. Sure. But, you know, they have that division. Like, look, um, there are white Baptist churches and there are black Baptist churches. And, and you're aware of that, of course. Uh, and wh- why why are there black Baptist churches? Because, uh, you know, back in the day, the black Baptists were not allowed to worship in the white, in the white Baptist churches. Sure. Regardless of the fact that they both use the same King James Bible, they both believe in the same Jesus Christ and God, but they didn't want them in their church, which is non, you know, which is not the Christian thing to do, right? And so now today, it's a little better, you know, I mean, there are still black Baptist churches and still white Baptist churches, uh, but some have mixed congregations, you know, but there's still a fine line. Let's say, let's say I belong to the, to the black Baptist church down, down the street. And, and there's a white Baptist church up the street. So one Sunday I decide, Hey, you know what? I, I think I'm going to go just check out, you know, that service. So I walk up, the, you know, a couple blocks up to the uh, white Baptist church and, and the guys are standing at the door holding, you know, handing out the programs as you walk in. And I say, Hey, you know, I'm from the, uh, the other church, you know, down the street. Uh, hey, welcome, welcome. You know, come on in. You know, here, here, here's a program. And I say, well, you know, do you accept me as, as your, uh, as your brother in Christ? Of course I do. You know, we're all brothers in Christ. And he gives me a big hug. You know, come on in. Of course I accept you as my brother in Christ. And then I say to him, but would you accept me as your brother-in-law? He might have a different reaction then. So, well, yeah, well, there's varying degrees of racism, just like there's varying degrees of racism. Yeah, but racism is racism. Right. Oh, I agree with that. And that's, uh, you know, so I guess, you know, because unfortunately we're we're running low on time, there was one incident in particular that, I feel kind of bothered me the most about what went on with your work is that when you went to Baltimore and met with kids, you know, and an an organizer from black lives matter, it got pretty heated to the point where the guy literally like threatened you and told you never to come back. But the the point was, is you were trying to talk to these people about how you had had successes, you know, with these people. And they're looking at you like, why would I even talk to them? That's wrong. You know, why, you know, um, and I, I don't want to paraphrase you. You're, you were there, you know what I'm talking about. So but I would say that the, the what I took away from the conversation was just that why are they rejecting this strategy that actually makes people, you know, abandon racism? And what, what what is the threat to them? I mean, there's a lot of motives in that. And I've talked about that on separate videos that people can check out. But, you know, why do they need to have this fight? That's what it felt like. It was to them. It's like they don't want a peaceful resolution. Do okay. they want equality or do they want revenge? Uh, both. Um, okay, the, the scene that you saw in, in the documentary, you talk about accidental courtesy. Yeah. Uh, all right. And understand back to what I was saying about Black Lives Matter. They are only the Black Lives Matter Baltimore faction, right? right? And they're not the ones who call me and want to get together and do workshops. All right. Um, what you saw in that film was only eight minutes. That scenario went on for about an hour. And it almost turned into physical violence. Now, yeah, I got that the, energy out of it. They wanted to fight me. Right. 
And, uh, and, you know, I mean, that, you know, that didn't happen. The, the producer got in between us and all that kind of stuff. Um, you didn't see that part on there, but I wanted, you know, that to be kept in the movie. You know, obviously, you know, we, we couldn't show a whole hour of it because we're taking up, you know, more than half the movie. Of course. Um, but I wanted some of that to be shown to show that nobody has a monopoly on racism. We all have to work together. We all have to be accountable and responsible, you know, for whatever racism we have. Uh, those particular people were black supremacists. All right. And, and they did not represent every faction of Black Lives Matter. Now, uh, here's what happens. So, so I, I give you a little bit of the dynamic. Um, if you're a white guy, and let's say you went out on a date with a, with a, with a black girl, or, or, or perhaps your wife is black, and you're out having dinner with her, and there's a clan, a clan member, a white, or not even a clan member, any clan member or any white supremacist uh, in the restaurant having dinner, you know, with his buddies or his wife or whatever, and and this person sees you with your black um, uh, significant other, they are going to hate you more than the black female you're with, because you are a disgrace to your race. You are a race traitor. You are a sellout. How dare you defile? your race, which is my race, you know, how dare you come in this place with that thing? You know, they're going to hate you more for selling out your own race because you look like them. All right. Uh, they don't like the black woman, but they hate you more. So if, if, um, if they open, if the, if the black supremacists uh, that you're talking about, if they open up a magazine or a newspaper or whatever, or TV, and they see me sitting next to uh, some guy in a robe and hood or a picture of me shaking hands uh, with some guy in a robe and hood, you know, they have a visceral reaction as I would. If I opened up a magazine and I saw a black person shaking hands with a Klansman, I'm like, what? what? What's going on here? But me, I would turn the page and read the story as to why this black person is shaking hands with this Klansman. And then I would conclude, oh, hey, you know, that's pretty cool. I like his strategy. But some people, like the ones you saw in Baltimore, they don't bother to get the backstory. They see the picture, they jump to a conclusion, and that's it. That perception becomes their reality. And that's I'm a racism. Sellout. That's I, total exactly. racism. Exactly. Right. It's called prejudge, as in prejudge, prejudice, prejudge, right. prejudice. All right. So their perception becomes their reality, and you can't tell them any different. Uh, I'm a race trader. They call me Uncle Tom. They call me an Oreo. They call me every name but my own, all oh, right, no. because they were convinced, you know, I'm catering to the Klan, I'm kissing their butt, I, I have a fetish with them, I'm a pimp in a pulpit, all kinds of stuff. But fast forward a year after that, uh, they reached out to me, and they wanted to get together with me and have dinner and talk. So I'm I, glad um, to hear that. Huh? I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, well. So we got to, because, you know, they had seen me in that year interim on interviews and read other stories that came out and they were beginning to understand what I was doing. They had their whole concept all wrong. So we got together. We had a good time. We had dinner. We talked. We agreed to work together and we started working together. And the older guy, the, the, the organizer, the older guy, uh, I started doing, you know, doing some stuff with him and then he got frustrated and fell off the wagon and he reverted back to the same person you saw in the film. So he and I don't work together anymore. Maybe he'll come around again. I don't know. The younger guy, uh, he, he's still, you know, you know, doing, you know, doing things and I, he's still accepting, et cetera. 
Um, but you know, they have they have a little ways to go. But at least the younger guy sees things a little better than he did in the past. And believe it or not, you know, uh, you know that that film won a lot of awards. It did a lot of uh, festivals, South by Southwest, and all over the country. However, there was one festival that refused to show that film, and that's right here in Silver Spring, Maryland, because they thought that scene that you were talking about, that you and I are talking about, they thought that scene was staged, that it was fake. There was nothing fake about that scene. That was real. That was real. Well, it was real. Like I've had very similar interactions with activists like, of course. in that situation all the time. And it, it's, it's even worse if you're white, then they'll just tell you you're not even allowed to talk about it. You know, but it's at Occupy, that sort of thinking started to invade what we were doing. And it basically destroyed Occupy Detroit. We went from this really homogenous, like perfect blend of people to being a now we're all divided up into our oppression groups. And then there was this new hierarchy assigned to whoever they said was the most oppressed as the one who gets to be in charge or do the most talking. But regardless, you know, I, I we're coming here towards the end and I, um, this was an interesting conversation and I, and I, I'm, I appreciate the pushback, um, you know, from, from you on things that I may have been wrong about. And I get that. I think though, at the end of the day, the biggest motivation and the thing that I took away from your work was that, that you can't spit hatred at somebody to try to get them over their hatred. And that's, one of the things that concerns me is that as we move forward right now, I'm watching is we're normalizing a negativity, you know, towards white people that inevitably creates a situation where they're less likely to get on board. And I, and more the point, it, it creates more of a justification in their minds to become more tribalistic or, you know, defensive or whatever, because, you know, especially if we're not acknowledging the fact that racism can be in anyone, can happen to anyone. Like I just I just did a show not long ago because they were trying to suggest that the the racism between um, blacks and Asians is somehow because of white supremacy. You know, that that's why that was caused. I'm like that. That's not what happened. And I did research into it. And it's just it's just like racism that develops anywhere else. If you have two communities that are, you know, in the same vicinity and competing over resources, then they start finding ways to hate each other over other things, you know, and that's what bothers me is that my big point about all this is not necessarily to stand on the hill and defend white people. That's not my issue. It's that I recognize that it is a terrible practice. If you're trying to destroy hatred to, you know, to allow yourself to be consumed by it and that actually doing that, creates more of it you're feeding it right you know that's that's why martin luther king used to say you know you have to defeat you defeat hate with love and if we're gonna spit slogans at people and call them white people or tell them like they just say stuff like white people can't you know season their food white people can't dance like this has just become a normal thing that people are doing i'm like well let, let, let me let me explain a little bit about the white people can't dance thing sure okay there is there's a reason behind that now, understand something. Um, there are white people who can dance their asses off. Sure. And there's some black people, you know, who, who, who can't dance at all. All right. On, you know, the, the, the typical saying is, you know, white people don't have, have rhythm and black people do. Now, on the whole, on the whole, that is, that is, uh, is accurate. All right. It's not always the case because there, there are always exceptions to the rule. But let me explain why that is, and then maybe it will make sense to you. Um, in Africa, 
And I lived in Africa for 10 years because of my dad's assignments, different, you know, different countries. Um, And I lived in Europe. In Africa, uh, between village to village, uh, people would, would, you know, um, in the past, they would use the talking drum. They would beat different rhythms on the drum to communicate. And, you know, you you studied all that. Same thing with Native Americans. They would use a talking drum. You, you, You play a certain rhythm on the drum. It means strangers are coming. It could mean somebody's getting married or a war is getting ready to break out. You know, they communicated by the drum. Different rhythms meant different things. And you can hear the drum from village to village a lot louder than you can hear somebody yelling and screaming. So that's why they use the drum to communicate because it resonates and echoes, you know, throughout the air. Um, So black people were accustomed, Africans, black people there are accustomed to hearing rhythms. It's innate, you know, uh, it's instinctual because they, they, they were raised on hearing these rhythms and interpreting them. Uh, are you familiar with, with the language of China, Chinese? Just a little bit. Okay, well, chi- Chinese is a tonal language. That's why when you hear them speak, it sounds very sing-songy. Ew, oh, you know, different pitches. Mm-hmm. They could say the same thing at a different pitch, the same words at a different pitch. It means something totally different. All right? We are not a tonal English is not a tonal language. All right? So their ears are a lot more acute to tones and pitches than ours are. You know, we kind of speak monotone, right? They speak sing-songy because it's all about pitch and tone. All right? So that's why you find a lot of Chinese people are better violin players than, than Americans because the violin has no frets on it like a guitar. You have to know exactly where to put your finger on that string to get A440 or whatever note you're trying to get. Their ear is a lot more acute than ours because they rely more on pitches. In Africa, um, their, their music is more rhythmic than European music. European music by the European masters like Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, Mozart, Rachmaninoff, Brahms, all those people, their music is based upon melody. Their music is more melodic than African music. African music is more rhythmic because the drum is an African instrument. The drum did not come from Europe. There were no drums in European music until someone brought one back over there from Africa. All right. So therefore, African people or, and their descendants, black people, black Americans, uh, Haitians, uh, Jamaicans, etc., they are more in tune with rhythm than European pe- people. European people are more in tune with melody and melodic things than than, than uh, Africans are because their music is is more is more melodious. The beauty is when you put the rhythm and the melody together. That. It's, that's the beauty of it. And it's interesting, you know, as, as you're a musician and I was too, you know, like blues rock in particular is my favorite sound of rock and roll, you know, but I, I don't want to bo- get... And both are black, blues and right, rock. Absolutely. No, no question. I like Chuck Berry is my hero from the 50s. Absolutely. I played with Chuck Berry for 32 years. You are lucky as hell. <laughs> I, I, I love that man. But the, I learned the, so much from him. But to get back to the, the relevant points that are here, the thing is, is like the conversation you and I just had about that if a white person was to have a conversation like that and describe the things you're discussing, they'd be called like racist, you know, for saying things like genetic determinism. Now, when I was younger, 
when we were fighting racism, they did an educational course just to explain the various differences between races. And I came away from that thinking, oh, this is so cool. And I was fascinated by different cultures and I wanted to learn about them and I wanted to understand them. And I, and it was a positive experience to discuss the differences you're discussing right now. But now that's being, you know, that's being framed as a negative thing. Like you can't have these conversations. Like when I ask somebody where they're from, it's not because I'm racist. It's because I'm interested in other cultures. Like right, I find them fascinating. Right. And you're going you know, to find people who get that. And you're going to find people who are ignorant and they don't get it. And, right. you, and, and you're going to find that not only in black people, but in white people and anybody else. You know, nobody has a monopoly on racism. But let me let me give you this one quote by by Jimi Hendrix, since you're a musician as well. Uh, and uh, Jimi, Jimi Hendrix once said, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Right. No, I agree with you there. And that's and and I get it. It also just that they come from different cultures and there's nothing wrong with that. I And then now we're being yelled at for cultural appropriation. And it, uh, but it, it, it's, know, not, know, it's not cultural appropriation if you give credit where credit is due. Music, absolutely. music and styles and traditions are meant to be shared. But but if you take it and call it your own as though you invented it, like Elvis invented rock and roll, you know, and so forth and so on. Elvis never said he invented rock and roll. Elvis always gave credit, but the powers that be, you know, you know, appointed him the king and Elvis invented rock and roll, you know, and, and, you know, they just kind of, you know, put Chuck Berry and little Richard and Bo, Did Bo Diddley and fast domino by the, by the wayside. You know, what happened was the white establishment hated Elvis Presley when he first came out because he was singing black music and he was wiggling around like a black person, wiggling his hips and his pelvis and all that stuff. They disdained him. They kicked him off a of TV for being lewd. The demand was so high they had to bring him back, and they only filmed him above the waist. All right? Uh, I love Elvis Presley. I saw Elvis 14 times. I met him twice. I went to his funeral, and I played later on with his band after he died in some tribute shows. Um, but El Elvis himself said he did not invent rock and roll. He, he, he gave the title king to Fast Domino and Chuck Berry. And um, but when when white people realized how much money could be generated by this music that Elvis was doing, then they embraced Elvis and appointed him king of rock and roll. And he invented it. They just rewrote history. I appreciate let's do this again. Know. Let's call let's call this part one and let's do part two again soon. I totally would love to do that. I'll, I'll reach out to your people about that. And thank you for coming on. Thank um, you. I really appreciate it. Yep. And um Good luck in your work, and I'm going to give people your website and ways to contact you in the description. Um, and it was great to meet you. My pleasure. Um, okay. But, um, yeah, I'd love to talk to you more. So let's let's definitely look into that in the future. So, all right. Um, thank you. Yeah, have, a great, thank you. have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Yep. So that was Daryl Davis. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I thought that was an excellent conversation. Um, it was a little different than I expected, but, um, you know, I, it's not often that I get a guest who can push back at me, you know, in a way that was very, you know, very constructive. And I like that. Um, but I hope that, you know, you guys got out of that conversation what I was looking for, which was that, you know, if you spit hatred at somebody, you're just going to get hatred back. Um, please feel free to check out my archives um, with other shows like this one. I've interviewed scientists, um, documentary filmmakers, senators, etc., activists over the years. Um, and I will uh, be 
having more guests on here pretty soon. I'm going to be having the second part with Derek Jensen um, coming up. I want to say, I think it's next week or the week after. And um, I'll be putting out some more content. So thank you very much for tuning in to V Radio.